Today's call to worship will be reading responsive reading in the back of your hymnal. It's on number 713. We'll be reading the light text if you could read the dark text. In this love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his holy begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Good morning, everyone. Happy Sabbath. Uh, today's reading is from the Old Testament, Daniel 8.12. And I'll give you a moment to turn uh, to it if you'd like to read with me. And I'm reading from the New International Version. <clears throat> because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. The Lord bless the reading of his word. Good morning. Before we begin, I just want to tell you, I'm delighted to be back with you again. I've been here a couple of times, but it's been a while. And I just need you to help me to determine whether I was not observant enough last time, or whether this beautiful art here at the front is new. I mean, new within a year and a half? It is new. Okay. Because I can't imagine having looked at that and not taken notice. It's fascinating. My eyes are drawn over here and in the far right panel. It looks to me like symbols of doves, but then again, it may be something else. It's... Very intriguing. And to say intriguing, I'm intrigued by your church. I see things here that um, really spark my interest. I see things that let me know that um, you're a good church. Small little things. Look in front of you where the tithe envelopes go. What do you find next to the tithe envelope? Little stupid golf pencils that you can't write with? No, you've got real honest-to-goodness pens. Uh, I'm, I'm just impressed. And there's a piece of art in the pastor's room where we gather that intrigues me a great deal. Your bell choir and your musicians that, that play along here, um, it's refreshing, it's invigorating. You are unique among the churches that I have visited, and I just want to uh, praise the Lord for you this day. Now, um, you know my name because it's in the bulletin. Uh, I'm a Frank. That's like a hot dog, and everybody knows that Haynes makes underwear, so now you will remember who I am, <laughs> although I don't spell my name the same way. Um, before I, I always pray before I preach, but before I do, I want to give a little explanation. Um, 
I don't want you to look at Daniel 8 and say, oh, I've heard it all before, snooze, snooze. I want you to see something that I don't hear very often out of Daniel 8, and I hope it's a joy to you. But I can't do it. I cannot preach. Uh, God does work through me if I allow Him, and I would like to seek Him right now. Father in heaven, what an awesome God you are. We cannot even begin to comprehend the depth of love that you have for us. Were we to be very mistakenly in your place, we would have given up on us, me, moments after I was born. But Lord, you have loved us with an everlasting love and drawn us to yourself. And so here we are today. Lord, I am about to open your word and give insights, I hope, that come from you and not from me. Hide me, Lord. Let me only be a talking head, but you be the one behind the words. You be the one who gives the message. And you be the one who touches each heart, including mine. So with praise and gratitude to be in your house, and with the assurance that you are with us and that you love us always, we one more time give you praise through Jesus our Savior. Amen. Earlier this week, I was online and looking at something from the Adventist News Network. And it was talking about the disappointment of 1844. And my disappointment was uh, agitated because the article said that William Miller had predicted the coming of the Lord in 1844. And if some of you are Bible scholars or church history scholars, you know that William Miller may have thought the Lord was coming in either 1843 or 44. He did not set the October 22 date, and I was greatly distraught that a church publication um, would be so misinformed. It was actually Samuel Snow, but we're not talking about all of that today. But in that, my mind was drawn back to what Miller found. William Miller was a farmer in east-central New York State. When the War of 1812 uh, was about to begin, there were a lot of people who knew William Miller and knew his strengths, and they said, we will enlist in the army to fight the British if Miller can be our leader. And so he became Captain Miller, as people who knew and trusted him enlisted to be part of his military team. They were 
going to be engaging the British at Lake Champlain. It's the beautiful lake that separates New York from uh, Vermont, up near the Canadian border. And there were something like 15,000 British with much fewer men on the American side. The British had their nice spiffy red coats, so they were easy to see. And the Americans had their just everyday clothes, so they could hide a little better. But it took more than camouflage clothing to defeat such a crack military team. Crack in the old sense, not the new one. Not a doubt that they were drug users. Miller had a young lieutenant who was a believer in God. Now, Miller attended church when his uncle preached. His uncle was a Baptist preacher. And he attended, but he was more of a theist. Someone who believed that God is there. The creation speaks of him. And I will confess to you this morning that I am a creationist to my inmost soul. It takes way too much faith to be an evolutionist. I don't have that kind of faith. Plus, I love my God, and I know that he will not lie to me. But Miller was a theist. He believed in God. God created things, but he kind of established laws and set the world going, and it just kind of followed the laws that God had set. He fully expected to die in the battle against the British at Lake Champlain. He did not expect to survive. But his young lieutenant had told him that he believed that God cared about their band of soldiers and about the United States of America and that we were called to be a people for a reason. And when the Battle of Lake Champlain was over and Miller was not only alive but his team of soldiers, sorry, I don't know all the military parlance, his group of soldiers had seemingly miraculously defeated the British. And he wondered whether God really did take an interest in human affairs. So when the war was over, he went to his home in Lowhampton, New York, and you've got to have a good map to find it. It's mostly not there anymore. And he took his Bible. Someone in the Sabbath school class today called it the King Jimmy Version. Whoa, I like that. <laughs> the King Jimmy Version. And he took what was available at his time as a concordance it was Cruden's Concordance. It wasn't as fancy and complete as the concordances are available today. You know, they, there's Strong's for the Strong's and Young's for the Young and Cruden's for the Crude, but it was the only concordance available. And he wanted no other tools other than the Bible and a tool to help him link texts together. Look up 
words and see all of the places where they were used. And it wasn't until he got from Genesis all the way to Daniel that Miller's research came into focus. Now, the, the message today I'm calling present truth always applies to the present times. If you believe that the message of Daniel 8, specifically Daniel uh, 11 through 14, applied to the long ago and far away, then it would not be present truth. Because 1844 was a long time ago. Now, before some of you shut me off and say, what's this heretic saying nothing happened in 1844? I'm not saying that. I'm saying there is a lot more in Daniel 8 that is still, to this day, present truth. And that's what I want to help us look at today. Present truth. You may know that James Springer White started a publication in 1849 that he called Present Truth. It was later called the Review and Herald. At one point it was the Advent Review and Sabbath Herald, and today it is the Adventist Review. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about present truth. So now, hopefully, I've got a little bit of interest going. I'd like for you to open your Bible to Daniel chapter 8. And in Daniel chapter 8, there's a lot we know about already, and we're not going to spend more than just a moment setting the stage. We know that there is talk here about a ram and a goat. The ram has two horns, one is on steroids and the other is just kind of regular. It's the Medo-Persians, and the Medes were the regular horn, and the Persians were the Arnold Schwarzenegger horn, the, the mighty, strong one. And it is encountered by a goat that sounds like a unicorn, because it has what? It has a notable horn between its eyes. Now, I've seen a fair amount of goats, and I have yet to see one with a horn between its eyes, but God wasn't talking about uh, mutations in the barnyard. He was showing what would take place when another power, strong, that horn represented Alexander the Great, and he came charging toward the Medes and Persians, and knocked them out of the park. In fact, he was running so fast, it was like his feet didn't touch the ground. Maybe you recall when you were a kid, you watched cartoons, and the fast-running character wouldn't even touch the ground. Its feet were going around so fast that they were just a blur. Well, let me tell you, the animationists weren't the first one to think of that. God used it first. This goat was running so fast it didn't even want to touch the ground. And it defeated the Medes and the Persians. But its horn, shortly thereafter, broke off. And it says that in its place came up four other horns. Now just briefly, 
I want to remind you that this was not written in English. You say, hey, I know that. This was not written in English. It was written in Hebrew. And in most other languages, nouns have gender. And I am really glad that I don't have to remember that. You know, um, because, uh, you know, when you're talking about your knife and your fork and your spoon, at least uh, in German, um, I think it's the knife that's masculine, the fork is feminine, and the spoon is neuter. I think, if I'm wrong, forgive me. It's been years. We don't worry about that sort of stuff, but it is important to know what the text is saying by that. Sometimes people say that these four horns um, grew up in place of the little horn and they miss something. So let's go to that. Um, Let's see. We want to go to uh, verse 8. The goat became very great, But at the height of its power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Now, we think four horns, but we seldom think four winds. However, we know that a pronoun has to agree in gender and number with its antecedent. So, if you were talking about... uh, Tom. You wouldn't say, Tom, she said this, because that wouldn't work. Or if you're talking about um, the Dodgers, you wouldn't say, he did this. So they've got to agree in number and in gender. And when you look at verse 9, out of one of them came another horn which started small we find that them cannot refer to the horns, but must refer to the winds. Because them is feminine. And horns, excuse me, them is masculine. And horns, strange as it may seem, are feminine. I would tend to think, you know, it's the males that have the antlers and the horns and stuff, but in Hebrew, this was a a feminine word, and so winds can be either masculine or feminine. So it's one of the four winds where this little horn comes from. But we're not going to spend a lot of time on that little horn except to look at what it does. It grew in power toward the south and toward the east and toward the beautiful land. But now, notice in verse 10, it grew until it reached the host of the heavens. Now, who would the host of the heavens be? Is it attacking the angels who are in heaven? It's a little tough to do from planet Earth. We can't do warfare with the angels up in heaven. We, we, uh, we don't have the altitude to get that done. But the host is a collection of people. And these are the people who belong to the heavens. Why do they belong to the heavens? Because they are the people 
of God. So the work of this little horn is growing until it involves the people of God. Now, I know you're thinking this is Old Testament stuff, this is boring, but I want you to, with fresh eyes, look at this and think of this action as not punctiliar and in the past, but that it is continual and still going on. That the power represented by this horn king that's involved in chapter 8 did not just do its deeds in the past. It is continuing to do its deeds today. And as such, it involves the people who are of the covenant of Jesus Christ. That means it involves you. So it grew until it reached the host of heaven. And we'll come back to that in a moment later when it shows up again in another verse. And it threw some of the starry host, this is a symbol of the saints, to the ground. That means that there was some martyrdom going on. Now, true, martyrdom is not as common today as it once was, and yet it does occur in some places in the earth. But we are told of another time when persecution will once again be revived. And I think the cause of the persecution in the past and the cause of the persecution in the future are related And the text we're going to look at today is going to show you how. So it grew until it reached the host of the heavens, until it reached the good folks in the Santa Clarita Seventh-day Adventist Church on February 9, 2013. And it threw some of them down to the earth and trampled on them. Now what else did this power do? It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. The prince of the host. If the hosts are the people of God, who is the prince of the host? I'll give you a clue. He is no longer a prince. But at the time this was written, he was a prince because he had not yet received his kingship. But who is the prince of princes? Jesus. So this power is saying, I'm as good as Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very boastful, dangerous, yes, blasphemous claim. But don't get too hung up there because you're thinking all of this is familiar. It starts to be unfamiliar at this point. It set himself up to be as great as the prince of the host and took away the daily sacrifice from him. Now I want you to understand that the word daily is there. Sacrifice is supplied by the translators and for a very good reason, but let me explain it. The word translated daily here is tamid. Now, tamid is not just um, a word like went. It's not just a word. It has special significance. It's a technical term. 
most of you have some exposure to computers. If I say USB, you may not know exactly what USB stands for, but you kind of know where it is on your computer and what to plug into it, right? You also may see HTTP, and you may not know that it stands for Hypertext Transfer Protocol. I don't know why I remember that, but it does. You don't have to know that. It's just part of the address label that you have to use to get your message from here to there. It's a technical term. Tamid is a technical term. The reason that it says the daily sacrifices is because most often Tamid does relate to the sacrifices. But let's take a look for a minute at how else that word is used. I want you to think of the sanctuary. You're good Seventh-day Adventist, or you've been studying with Adventist, and so you've heard about the sanctuary. Let's use the sanctuary in the wilderness. We're more familiar with that than, than the Temple of Solomon. You have in the sanctuary a courtyard, correct? And the courtyard is big. And if you divide it in half... In one half of that courtyard is the sanctuary itself. And that sanctuary is about two-thirds of one half of the courtyard. And then the sanctuary itself is divided into two parts, holy and most holy. And the holy is about twice as large as the holy. But as you approach the sanctuary you come to the place where all the sacrifices were offered. It is the altar of burnt offerings, the altar of sacrifice, the brazen altar, the bronze altar. But you know it was where the animals were killed. The reason that Tamid is used for this piece of furniture most often is that sacrifices happened all the time. All the time. Because every individual, at least every male, and sometimes I think that the females were included in what the husband or father did, but let's think totally inclusively here. Every sinner had to offer a sacrifice at least how often? At least once a year. If you didn't have your sacrifice presented before the Day of Atonement, what happened to you? You were cut off. You were no longer part of the covenant people. So everybody had to do it at least once. But that is your, that is your initiation into the family. There was also every morning and every evening a sacrifice made on behalf of everybody. And once you offered your sacrifice you were kind of included in those morning and evening sacrifices. Now, those days, there were 360 days in a year, 30 days to a month. That got fixed later to make it coincide with the, with the heavenly bodies. So there would be 720 morning and evening sacrifices, and then everybody would have to have at least their one. But, you know, back then... Maybe you've noticed it still happens. People sin. And when you sin, you had to also bring a sacrifice. 
And so if you sinned a lot, you brought a lot of sacrifices. And so there was a lot of sacrifice going on. So much so that you wonder, where did all the animals come from? What did they do with all the blood? What did they do with all the carcasses? Because parts of it were used and parts of it were eaten, and I know all of that. But it was a bloody situation. What was the reason God gave sacrifices in the first place? Why? Why did he do that? When Adam and Eve sinned, when they sinned, what was the population of the earth? Does anybody know? Population of the earth. Two. You're very smart. Okay, population of the earth was two. And what was the relationship between the two? Their husband and wife. So when it says that they were both naked and not ashamed, who cares? If you're married, have you ever been seen in the all together by your spouse? Does it worry you? I mean, maybe the first time. Yeah, maybe the first time you say, oh, you didn't know you were getting into this. But... They weren't shy about their body being exposed because they were husband and wife and nobody was peeking in the windows. There weren't any windows. Population of the earth was two and they were husband and wife. But when they sinned, what did they do? They tried to cover themselves. And by the way, their choice of covering was weird. Fig leaves... You don't really want to put fig leaves on your skin, especially more tender parts, because it stings. Maybe they chose it because they were large. And we assume that they covered their second parts. I'm not so sure. I wondered whether maybe they covered their faces because they were so ashamed of what they had done. But whatever it was that they covered, when they realized that they had rebelled against God, something was different. Something was drastically different. What was it? The presence of God had withdrawn. So God was really ticked, and he says, I'm just going to go back to heaven and leave you all here. Is that what happened? No, he came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He still came looking for them who moved. God was still there. God was still coming. But Adam and Eve felt uncomfortable. And so they were looking for something to make themselves presentable again. Something was wrong with their lives, and it was the absence of God. They didn't know what to do with it. So they used fig leaves. When the Lord came... Did he say, nice job with the tailoring, folks? No. What did he do? He made garments for them of what? Skins. So did he go to Walmart and pick out some nice skins and sewed up? Where did the skins come from, folks? From the sacrifice. God, with Adam and Eve, that dreadful day, walked with them to where there was a lamb, and said, let me show you, I'm going to save you, but let me show you the cost. Now, the only way I can grasp the awfulness of this is to think about my dogs. I've got three of them. Well, pardon me, 
two. My best loved dog, Riley, died back in June, and I'm still not quite over it because I love that dog. So I'm going to, for my illustration, talk about my boxer, Riley. God would say, Frank, I want you to take Riley, your favorite animal friend, and I want you to look into his eyes and take this sharp rock here and cut his throat and watch him die and know that it's your fault. I had to actually put my my Riley down because he'd gotten so sick he couldn't eat or drink and there was nothing the vets could do for him because his insides weren't working anymore. And to take his life, even though it was the loving thing to do, was horrifying. God wanted Adam and Eve to recognize that sin was not trivial that in order for them to be made whole, someone that they loved and someone who was innocent had to die. And God went through that procedure with both Adam and Eve. And then they got to wear the skin of the animal that they killed. Why? Because God was really rubbing it in, right? No. Because what was being symbolized was vitally important. You know from 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him, Jesus the Christ, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, our sin brought about the death of Jesus. And our attempts to make ourselves right Anything that we do, be it fig leaves or being a vegetarian or being a vegan or studying your Sabbath school lesson seven times or paying a double tithe or being able to diagram the sanctuary and its services, none of that amounts to a hill of sand. It is all about Jesus. All about Jesus. And the sacrifice represents what he did for us. An amazing act of love. Imagine the person in your life that has dogged your steps, made your life miserable, called you all kinds of impolite names, wronged you repeatedly. And now imagine yourself saying, I will die so that that person can live. You wouldn't do it, would you? I wouldn't. (laughs) I pray that I might if asked, but if I ever could, it wouldn't be Frank that did it. It would be Jesus working through me. But that's what Jesus did. The Apostle Paul in Romans says that while we were his enemies, 
Christ died for us. So that altar of offerings, oh, is that important? You bet. But as you go into the sanctuary, what do you find? There's the labor too, but I'm not dealing with that this morning. I'm sorry. But as you go into the sanctuary, if you look to one side, you see the bread of the presence. If you like show bread, it's the same thing. I just prefer bread of the presence. It shows the presence of God with his people. There was a cake of bread, more like pita bread, flat. There was a cake of bread for each of the 12 tribes because Christ became the bread of life for all of his people. If you look to the other side of the room, you would see the seven-branch menorah lampstand. They didn't really use candles, so candlestick's not a good name for it. Seven, the number of perfection. Representing Christ as the light of the world, representing the fullness of the Holy Spirit in Revelation, but it is the perfect number of God shining in the darkness. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But what happens when Christ comes? His glory shines on us. So when we look at the sanctuary, what are we seeing? We are seeing the ministry of Jesus Christ, are we not? We're seeing his death to save us. We're seeing his living presence. We even today use the bread to represent the body of Christ. And we see him as the light of the world, bringing light into darkness. As we move toward the most holy, we see the altar of incense. And the incense was a place of mediation. And what did Christ do? He came to stand between us, the sinner, and the holiness of God. There needs to be something that can bring both of us together. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting men's trespass against them. Why? Because Jesus the Christ died in our place. The incense is the mediation of Christ standing in front of us so that when holy God looks at us, his holiness is covering us completely. The blood of the sacrifice was ministered by the priest. The high priest had about a nine by nine square object that he wore on his heart. We tend to call it the breastplate. It was a span by a span. Your hand like this, half a cubit, nine inches more or less, quarter of a meter. On that were 12 stones, and under each stone was written what? The name of the tribes of Israel. Take this now in its New Testament sense. Israel is those who have accepted the salvation that Jesus offers. So the stones and the names 
represent us. And Christ, our high priest, is always wearing that. What is he wearing it over? Over what is he wearing it? What's right here? I think I've got one. Uh, I'm pretty sure you do too. And when we talk about the heart, we're not just talking about the organ that pumps our blood. We're talking about the seat of emotion. So where are the people of God? If Jesus is the high priest and we are on that breastplate and we are right here, where are we? In the heart of God. And the high priest had this interesting little hat. King James calls it a mitre. Uh, I don't know exactly what a mitre is. It's a hat. Okay? And it had a gold plate, a gold band across the forehead. When you are talking about what you think, where do you point? To your arm? No. You point to your forehead. Your human brain is right behind that big, broad area. For some of us, it's a little higher than others. I'm backwards. So my higher part is coming from the back of the head. Because Christ has his holiness given to us on his mind all the time. Now I want to give you some texts. If you've got, take one of those nifty pens that are right there in your tithe envelope thing. Thank you whoever thought that up and put them there. Or if you've got your own pen, that's great. But I want you to write down some texts. And when you've got some time, I want you to look these up. It'll take way too long for us to do it this morning. I'm going to tell you what's there. But I want you to look at them with your own eyes. And it doesn't matter what translation you use. All of these texts have something in mind. In the Hebrew, each one of them uses that word that we talked about a minute ago, tamid. Okay? The first one is Numbers chapter 7. Numbers, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 7. Numbers 4, 7. And it talks about the bread of the presence. Christ, the bread of life. And as you look at that, ask yourself the present or the question, how long was the bread of the presence before the Lord? And most translations will say continually. Continually. The bread of the presence is continually before the Lord because it is Tamid. I think of the Tamid as the continual. But let's look at some more text. That was Numbers 4, 7. Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. This has to do with the incense that's burning on the altar in front of the veil before the most holy place. Now, wild guess. How often was the incense burning? Tamid, continually. Because how often is the mediation of Christ? Taking place? Always. It's continually taking place. Write down this text, Leviticus 24, 
verses 2 to 4, has to do with the lamps, the menorah. How often were they burning? How long were they burning? Guess what? Continually. Look at Leviticus chapter 6, 12 and 13. The fire on the altar of burnt offerings was always burning. It was continually there. By the way, I can't let this pass. It is important because when the sanctuary was first dedicated to the Lord, they didn't go in there with their flint rock and start the fire. Where did the fire come from? It came from God. Folks, tuck this away into your memory banks. Fire is a symbol of the holiness of God. And when the holiness of God comes in contact with sin, what happens? Sin is consumed. Were it not for the righteousness of Jesus Christ, when God came into our presence, what would happen to us? We wouldn't be toast. No, we wouldn't be toast. We wouldn't be ashes. We would be vaporized. There would be nothing at all left of us. Take the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. The sacrifice representing sin, representing Jesus who took our sin and his blood got on the wood, his blood got on the stones, his blood ran down into the dirt, the water that was poured on there diluted it so that it spread even more. And when the fire of the Lord came down, what happened to the sacrifice and everything there? It was gone. In less than a heartbeat, it was gone. When the holiness of God comes into the presence of sin, sin is eradicated. We have no hope without our sin-bearing Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That holiness of God endures forever. Look in Revelation chapter 15 and you'll find that... The redeemed are standing next to the sea of glass mingled with fire as they're praising God. The throne of God, Daniel 7, is flaming with fire. That sea of glass is a reflecting pool for the throne. And the sea of glass mingled with fire is the holiness of God shining on that crystal clear lake. If you've ever been to a mountain lake and seen the reflection on the waters, it's the most beautiful sight. Imagine those waters reflecting the glory of the throne of God. The fire on the altar was continual because God's holiness is always there. But it is Jesus, the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that makes it possible for us to endure with that holy fire. If you go to Numbers 28, verse 6, you'll find the Tamid is used for the burnt offerings because they represent the sacrifice of Jesus. They were continual. If you look at Exodus 28, verse 29, you'll find that the high priest wore that plate with our names written on it. Guess how often he wore it, folks? Continually it was Tamid. And the gold plate that says holy to the Lord or holiness to the Lord, he wore that continually. 
Folks, I want you to know that the word tamid refers to the plan of salvation. As it was understood prior to the time of Jesus as the services of the sanctuary. Now, in all of those things, in the fire, the sacrifice, the lamps, the bread, the incense, the blood, the high priest, who is symbolized by all of those things? Jesus. What part does the sinner play in redemption? Hard pressed to think of something, aren't we? What we do, we come to the Lamb. We come to the innocent victim. And we, by our sinfulness, cause its death. Can't take much credit for that, can we? That's all we do. We say, I'm nothing. I am useless. I am condemned by my own choice. By my heredity, yes. But since my heredity kicked in, my choice has led me to sin more times than I could ever tabulate. The Tamid is the continual work of God in our salvation. Now that you understand that, I hope you never, ever forget it. But let's go back to Daniel 8. It'll be very quick now because you've already seen what it means. So let's go back and we want to pick this up at verse 10. This power. Don't tend to think of it in the, as the fulfillment in more contemporary times. Think of it as the power working against the people of God. Okay? I know that it has other applications, but just think of it as the power under the influence of the archenemy of our souls. Okay? It grew until it reached the church. And it threw some of the believers down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as Jesus Christ. And it took away the Tamid from him. Remember, sacrifices supplied. It took away the Tamid from him. The Tamid represents what? The plan of salvation. The correct, the truthful understanding of the plan of salvation. How you and I are rescued from our sin. That truth was taken away by the enemy. It gets more intense. It set itself up to be as great as Jesus Christ and took away the understanding of the plan of salvation from him, the prince of the host, from Jesus Christ. And the place of his, Christ's, the prince of the host, the place of his sanctuary was brought low. What does that mean? We began to distort the plan of salvation. Verse 12. Because of rebellion. 
What's another name for rebellion? Resistance. In this sense, what does rebellion mean? Three-letter word beginning with S, ending with N, and I in the middle. Okay? Because of our sinfulness, the understanding... Oh, hold on a second. I lost my place. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints, that would be us, the believers, and the understanding of the plan of salvation, were given over to it. We lost the correct understanding of the plan of salvation because of the hardness of our hearts, because of our resistance to what God says, because of being moved by popular opinions. It, the power opposing Christ, prospered in everything it did, and what was cast to the ground? Truth. When you look at it, the text says, the way we understand the plan of salvation was thrown to the ground, was trampled on the ground, because we, not just those Old Testament believers, because we, right here today, are so sinful and think that we are so important that we don't give glory where the glory belongs. In that plan of salvation that we have been looking at, how much did we do? We caused the whole mess. What else did we do to affect our salvation? There is one thing. We fell on our knees and said, Lord, save me. Lord, I believe your promise. I don't know why you love me. I don't know how it is that you can love me after all that I have been and all that I have done, but thank you, Lord. That's it. Now, present truth in the time of William Miller was that this brought to mind in the hearts and minds of people that Jesus was coming again and was coming soon. That was present tense in the 1830s and in the 1840s. And in the 1840s and thereafter, present truth came to be associated with the pre-Advent judgment. But I want you to know that today there is still present truth. And it has been largely lost even in the church that I love, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I've been a member of this church all of my life and a baptized member since 1963. I love the Adventist Church But it says because of rebellion, because of hardness of hearts, there have been some who have thought that we, the sinner, have something to do with our own salvation. Now sometimes people say, oh, wait, this distorting of the plan of salvation and the throwing truth to the ground, that comes from false doctrine and the worship of Mary and saints and such. Are we so 
arrogant as to think that it could not apply in some way to us? Could we possibly be trampling on the truth of the plan of salvation by even imagining that our salvation is based on what we do? Some people are shutting me off right now because you want to believe that you have a part in your salvation. You do. Humbling yourself before Jesus Christ and saying, Lord, save me. But just as the sinner could do nothing more in the sanctuary, today you and I can do nothing more to save us. Any act of obedience that we do, what does it mean? I just want to show you one other text. It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Clock watchers, I'm almost done. Um, Luke, chapter 17. I want you to start in verse 7. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant, when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat. Would he not rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Verse 10. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Doing what we do does not save us. What we do is a response to the matchless love of God. It is not a stair step to righteousness. I have known of people who took on an air of superiority because they were vegans and looked down their patrician noses. Look it up. Looked down their patrician noses at those of us who were mere vegetarians and scorned those who were omnivores and ate chicken or beef or turkey. I want to tell you, your salvation has nothing to do with what you eat. Your salvation has nothing to do with the day of the week on which you worship. These things are things we do out of a heart of love for the God who said, this is what I want you to do. It doesn't do anything to save you. You're not a penny's better nickel, dime, quarter, half buck, whatever. You're not any better at all for doing those things. You're only doing what God has asked you to do. Your and my only salvation is Jesus Christ, the sacrifice. But there's a little more. There's a little more, and this is really encouraging. Because back in Daniel 8... Daniel hears these two angels, and they're having this conversation, and one of them says to the other, How long will this take place? How, uh, verse 13. 
I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the Tamid, the plan of salvation. And the rebellion that causes desolation. How long is the rebellion going to go on? And the surrender of the sanctuary, the plan of salvation, and the people of God to be trampled underfoot. Get the question? How long is this sin going to go on? How long are we going to refuse to understand the fullness of the gospel? How long will we be willing or unwilling participants in understanding that we're saved by grace in Jesus Christ and our act is just to believe and to be thankful? And the angel replied, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be, I'm going to teach you one other word, tzedek. T-S is a sound like in the word czar, or like in pizza. Okay? T-S-A-D-A-Q. If you want to look up tzedek, T-S. A or E, uh, A D E Q, Tzadek. It means vindicated or restored to its rightful place. Now, present truth back in the 1840s was the understanding of the plan of salvation. That doesn't go away. That was present truth for them. Present truth for us is when does the truth about the plan of salvation begin to emerge. Okay, what year did the 2300 evenings and mornings end? 1844. Guess what movement began in 1844? The movement of which you and I are a part Beginning in 1844, not only did God begin to explain the pre-advent judgment, that's true, but there's more to it. Beginning at that time, God says, I'm going to get some people who are going to tell the truth. They are going to restore knowledge to people in darkness. They are going to say, my authority doesn't come from human sources. My authority comes from God via the Holy Scripture. And that's us. We are the repairers of the breach. We are the ones who are to take to the world the truth about the plan of salvation. And we cannot do it if we're thinking that we're saved in any way, shape, or form by works. The sinner didn't get into the sanctuary. He couldn't even go in the building. Right? The sinner couldn't even go in the building. He was out in the parking lot, so to speak. He was in the outer court. That was as far as he could go. It was the blood of Christ that did it all. And folks, present truth for today is not throwing away the truth of the past. It's not. 
It's wonderful. But present truth for today is Jesus is what it's all about. We are saved by Jesus, not by us. We're only unfaithful servants. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross. I cling. I know I've gone way over time, but I hope that this understanding kindles a fire in your heart, a desire to know Jesus better, that with this knowledge you will take your Bible and start studying in Romans and all of the epistles of Paul and discover that we are saved by grace through believing in Jesus and not of works, lest any man or woman or child should, should boast. It is our rebellion that made all this stuff go on. How can we, the rebellious ones, reconcile ourselves to God? We cannot. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The good news is, the present truth for the day is, Jesus is coming again. There is a time when the record of the saints will be reviewed. But if I read Daniel correctly, judgment was pronounced how? In favor of the saints of the Most High. Why? Because we were good? No, we're unfaithful servants. We're the one who messed it up in the first place. We can't fix our own disaster. But we can tell the world that we have a friend, a brother, a Savior, a God who reconciles us to God. The Tamid is being, said Deck, the plan of salvation is being vindicated and restored to its rightful place. And God has raised up a community of believers to proclaim it. And it's not just fat old preachers. To each one of you, regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, regardless of your talents or abilities, because each one of us can share the Tamid, the plan of salvation, and glorify our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your time. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We're so thankful for you, Lord. Words cannot express, but our hearts pour out praise and thanksgiving to you. Bless each person who has heard this message today. May we cling to our Savior as though our life depended on it, because without him we are already dead. Lord, thank you for your saving grace, for your matchless love for accepting our worship that we offer in the name of our Savior today. Dismiss us, please, with your blessing, but never, ever from your presence. Amen.